one of the things that I wanted to um, point out to you is that a lot of the um, talks that have been uh, being given at, at this uh, year's pain week have been uh, discussing the CDC guidelines and the whole issue of the opioid epidemic. What I'm hoping that I can do for you this morning is to provide you a slightly different perspective um, because a lot of the CDC guidelines, in fact, are geared towards the primary care physicians and outpatient um, uh, patients who are, who are being treated for pain. And um, there isn't actually that much discussed about uh, the role of opioids if there is a problem uh, in a perioperative environment. So I'm going to provide you with uh, the literature that's out there to give you a slightly different perspective about what's going on in the perioperative world. How many of you deal with you know, acute pain patients or perioperative patients? So that's, that's why you guys are probably here, right? All right, so I hope that I could at least shed some light about um, prescribing practices and whatnot. I have no uh, financial interest to disclose. I'm a poor academic physician. The uh, learning objectives are going to be to describe the history of the opioid prescribing practices in the United States. Um, I'm going to briefly uh, talk a little bit about the link between opioids and heroin and then components of an effective ERAS protocol. Do you know what ERAS stands for? Have you guys heard of that before, enhanced recovery after surgery? Good. And um, because there's a lot uh, to cover, I'm going to uh, stay behind and, and um, answer questions. Um, and I'll try to direct questions to the end of the, of the talk. So um, again, a little bit about how, uh, how did we get here? How did we get to this stage uh, in the problem? Um, the role of persistent postoperative opioid use. I don't know how many of you see patients after they're discharged from the hospital, but how many of them uh, uh, remain on opioids and even go up on opioid uh, use after they're discharged from their surgery. Increased unused opioids and how that's linked to illicit drug use, the transition to heroin, and then rethinking the postoperative uh, paradigm. So uh, pain and the desire to relieve it is an unfortunate part of human existence. It's um, the, the prescribing of medications and the performing of uh, interventions have been going on for centuries. It's been considered a core competency of healing professions. And so the first thing that I really want to get across to everybody in the audience is that the, you know, this insidious road that led to the opioid epidemic is really a road that was paved with good intentions. I don't think anybody... Um, in, in terms of physicians or frontline practitioners, had any uh, malintention um, in, in how we've gotten to this stage. So it's really important to understand that we all had good intentions for our patients. So <clears throat> it turns out that in 19th century America, virtually unregulated unre opioids were prescribed and sold for a wide variety of conditions, anywhere from toothaches to diarrhea. And in fact, Bayer Corporation that makes aspirin, that you all know, made its first fortunes actually selling, uh, selling heroin in the late 1890s. It was marketed um, towards uh, adults and children for the treatment of cough and cold. How many of you have watched that show, The Nick, on Cinemax, or you guys know what I'm talking about? It's a very interesting show. Clive Owen is this surgeon in um, the turn of the century America, 19th uh, century America in New York in this fictional Knickerbocker hospital. And he's faced with a lot of the consequences and, and goes through a lot of the problems uh, with what I'm talking about. So you may understand a little bit of what I'm talking about if you've watched that show. <clears throat> by 1911, this is an interesting statistic, by 1911, one out of every 400 Americans were addicted to some form of opium. One out of every 400 Americans were addicted to some form of opium. That's why in 1911 there was an act that was passed by Congress called the Harrison Narcotics Act. 
And you can see there's a little stamp here on this heroin vial subject to the Harrison Act. So it began to regulate the manufacturing, the importation, and the distribution of opium and cocaine in the United States because this was such a big deal. Now, because of this act, and because at the time addiction wasn't considered or regarded as a disease, doctors who prescribed maintenance supplies of these medications and these agents to their addicted patients, they risked loss of their license, even incarceration. So you can see this um, headline from the Washington Post in 1920, why high-life drug addicts are in a panic, and they're talking about this Dr. Bishop and how you know, it's, it's very difficult to treat legitimate pain under this act. And so, <clears throat> unfortunately, the criminalization of addiction led to the undertreatment of legitimate pain in the United States. There followed years of advocacy by a wide variety of health and professional organizations, um, and many articles were prescribed on the efficacy and safety of opioids during this period of time. It culminated in 1997 by the passing of this statute. It's called the Intractable Pain Statutes by a number of states. So if you go to the you know, Federation of State Medical Board's website, they'll talk about how in 1997 um, they talk a little bit about uh, the, um, in the initiative to adopt these um, intractable pain statutes, and it was revised in 2003. Now, you can see how um, with all this proceeding as a, uh, as a basis for what we talked about, that it's very easy to understand how we have become this unimodal, unidimensional approach that was initially uh, used for end-of-life intractable cancer pain, and it was it gradually <clears throat> spread towards uh, the use for patients who had acute pain and for chronic non-cancer pain. And so pain medicine, if you want to call it that, or I should say pain management, became synonymous with opioid use over the, over the last several decades. Now, <clears throat> is there any surprise to why this has happened? So this was an article that was published out of um, the group at Hopkins in 2011. And by the way, all the, every slide has its reference at the bottom if you want to um, look into it a little bit further. <clears throat> so in this study, she looked at the amount of education um, that is given to medical students in North America, and she compared the United States uh, to, um, to Canada. <clears throat> and you can see the United States is in these light, lighter shaded bars and can Canadian medical schools in the, in the darker. It turns out that the majority of medical schools spend about nine hours on average of their entire medical school education on pain education. Nine hours. So let's compare that to veterinarian schools. Veterinarian schools spend, on average, 500% more time talking about pain management um, regarding a wide variety of animals than compared to um, U.S. medical schools. In Canada, they fare a little bit better. They average about 19. What's the most common reason why a patient approaches a physician? Pain. So there's clearly a disconnect going on here. <clears throat> if you look at the top 20 drugs for the year 2011 in terms of workman's compensation claims, you'll find a whopping 25% of all medications, especially if you look at the top 20 uh, drugs, a whopping 25% were spent on some form of an opioid. If you look specifically at what opioids were prescribed, almost 50%, so about 45.6% 
of the opioids that were prescribed had oxycodone as the active ingredient. And if you look at the types of medications that were prescribed, OxyContin, which is not a generic medication, unbeknownst to a lot of practitioners, it is a, it is a trade-named drug, a whopping quarter percent, 25 percent of all opioids prescribed that year were for this brand name OxyContin, which is quite expensive. So the, uh, Amer the uh, American Pain Society, or APS, they may have been the, one of the first sort of unwitting protagonists to uh, the condition that we're in right now. They published this um, in uh, the late 1990s, around 1998, Principles of Analgesic Use in the Treatment of Acute Pain and Cancer Pain. And they advocated the whole notion of pain as the fifth vital sign. You guys know this term, correct? And so by doing so, they had very good intentions. And, and I don't actually disagree with this. It's the approach to it that is what got us to where we are right now. But being that, pain as the fifth vital sign, it was, it was eventually adopted by Joint Commission in uh, the late 1990s. And as you all know, and as a, a wide variety of speakers at this conference had already commented, that President Bill Clinton signed a bill in early 2000, making 2000 to 2010 or I should say 2001 to 2011, the decade of pain control and research. So how did we do? Well, <clears throat> this was a study that was published in 2003, and they compared overall pain after surgery. And they looked at it um, from a meta-analysis and a review of patients. This was published in, um, in 1993, the white bars, and in 2003 were the gray bars. And it turns out, that we did a lot worse postoperatively in terms of taking care of patients' pain control in the year of pain control and research. So there were more patients. Almost 40% um, of patients had severe or extreme postoperative pain compared to um, less than, you know, or about 30% in the decade prior. And so we haven't really been doing that great of a job. And, if, and as we know, Inadequately managed post-surgical pain leads to a wide variety of conditions. So we know that there's increased complications that can occur. There's increased resource utilization. We know that patients will spend a longer period of time in the hospital. There are higher rates of readmission. And of course, hospitals are now being dinged on their readmission rates, and they're being uh, scrutinized very closely. And there's the potential for progression from acute to chronic pain, which is a very interesting paradigm. And um, I think some people have touched on it during this, um, during this series of lectures. If you look at the <clears throat> recent Cochrane Review, and this is very interesting because the CDC guidelines, um, when they went through to look at the evidence for long-term opioid use, they refuted, or I, I shouldn't say they didn't look at, or they um, discounted any study that looked at opioid use less than one year. And so if you look at the meta-analysis from the Cochrane Review, there were 62 randomized controlled trials in this meta-analysis. And they actually did find that opioids were more effective than placebo for nociceptive and neuropathic pain on a short-term basis. But there was very weak evidence for long-term use. Specifically, it was this component of that long-term use that was shifted into the CDC guidelines as that being very weak to little to no evidence for long-term use. Although we do know that Opioids are very effective for short or acute pain. What works to decrease opioid use? 
Well, we know that there's a wide variety of things that we use in perioperative medicine to try to curb the amount of opioids that we prescribe. And we call this multimodal analgesia. You can also call it rational pharmacotherapy, whatever moniker you want to give it. But we do know that <clears throat> neuraxial analgesia provides a wide variety of relief, not just from pain, but in terms of recovery, especially when it comes to abdominal surgery and uh, thoracic surgery. I was just talking with somebody earlier about ketamine infusions, which can be quite helpful, especially with NMDA antagonism uh, postoperatively. Acetaminophen is very helpful. A lot of people try to sort of poo-poo acetaminophen, but it's actually very important as a, as a basis for the regimen that you use in multimodal analgesia. Um, clonidine can be helpful in, as an alpha-2 uh, adenoreceptor excuse me, agonist. We do peripheral nerve blocks and local anesthetics. I won't spend a lot of time on this. This isn't the focus of the talk, but I do want to point out the basis for the fact that opioids are not the only thing that you can use to treat postoperative pain. We know this. Everybody who treats patients postoperatively knows this. So, um, so what's going on? What, what exactly is the, is there persistent opioid use after surgery? Is this even a problem? Do we need to even worry about this? So we send patients out of the hospital with a, with a boatload of opioids. What happens afterwards? Do we follow up with those patients? So there were two specific studies that I want to point out. They were both Canadian studies. And the first study looked at long-term analgesic use after low-risk surgery. So these were specifically surgeries that really shouldn't be very painful. They looked at four specific surgeries, cataract surgery, lap colis. Some people can argue that lap cholecystectomy can be a painful surgery, but I'll, I'll take that. But look at the, 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 the data. It'll be very interesting. Transurethral resection of the prostate and varicose vein stripping. <clears throat> they looked at it. Now, granted, it was, it's going to be fraught with problems because it's a retrospective cohort study, but it looked at a long period of time, 1997 to 2008. So you can understand that during this period of time, I'm sure that a wide variety of multimodal use shifted during that period of time, but we'll keep that in mind. Almost 400,000 patients were looked at at this study. Opioid naive, age 66 or older. And it turns out that about 7.1% of these patients were prescribed opioids within seven days of their surgery. Of those patients, 10% of them remained at a year on those opioids. What's interesting is that the highest number of patients that were prescribed opioids were actually for the cataract surgery patients, not for the lap coles. And it's a whopping number. I mean, 26,500 compared to 222. That's incredible to me for a cataract surgery patient. And what's interesting, and they compared it to NSAID use, and which, was, which was actually a lot less. NSAIDs were used a lot less in these patients than um, opioids. And when you looked at what happened um, a little bit more in depth with these patients, it turns out that what was prescribed predominantly in the first seven days after surgery was codeine. The next highest agent was oxycodone. But at one year follow-up, when they looked at the percentage of opioids that were prescribed to these patients, a larger percentage of stronger opioids were being prescribed. Now, you can argue these patients were 66 years old or, or older, and so these could be necessarily, they, they didn't look at the causation of the opioid use. So there could be a wide variety of other conditions that these people had pain for that they found was useful in treating their opioids. But it, be that as it may, and that's one of the criticisms of the study, but it's important to point out that these patients were opioid naive before the surgery. And now they remained a year on stronger opioids. In fact, oxycodone use tripled 
long oxycodone, long-acting oxycodone went up from 0.04 to almost 2%, and fentanyl patch went from 0.01 to 1.6%. Now, uh, the other study that I wanted to point out were for patients who underwent painful surgery. So this was, the first thing I talked about was low-risk surgery. Let's talk about actual risk. So this is major surgery, population-based cohort. This is, again, out of Canada. Again, it's a retrospective cohort. This one's a little later, 2003 to 2010. During that period of time, I think that the care for patients were a little bit more uniform than, say, in the 1990s. This was a smaller study, but still almost 40,000 opioid-naive patients, again, 66 years or older. Their main outcome measure was prolonged opioid use at greater than 90 days. So they weren't looking at a year, but they were looking at 90 days. Now, most of us would say that patients who are taking opioids after surgery probably should be off of them by about 90 days. I think that's a reasonable assumption. So about 50% were discharged with opioids. This is, these were painful surgeries, and I'll get to what specifics um, or what specific surgeries were, were involved in just a second. About 3% continued for greater than 90 days. Now, 3% might be considered a small number when, it, when you look at the overall scope of this thing, but when you look at the number of patients who are undergoing surgery per year, 3% becomes a huge number of patients who are left on opioids without some reasonable way of coming off of them postoperatively. This is something that I want you guys to think about. What were the risk factors that they found in this study? Younger age, lower household income. There were specific comorbidities, so like diabetes, heart failure, pulmonary disease. Now, you might say that it was because they have these specific comorbidities that they couldn't use some of the adjuvant medications because of the organ dysfunction that could occur. And so opioids were the only thing that were available for them to use, and that's understandable. That's something that it's important for you to understand. We have to critically analyze these things. Specific preoperative drugs, so people who are on SSRIs, ACE inhibitors, or benzodiazepines. And then this is what I find was really interesting. Both open and minimally invasive procedures showed almost the same rates of opioid use after surgery. We tend to think that just because a patient, for example, is undergoing a VATS, a video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, instead of a huge whopping thoracotomy, that they're going to have less pain. That may be true on the acute pain side, but it turns out when we look at the chronic pain, they're actually equal. Take a look. So these were the surgeries that they looked at. They looked at cabbage. They looked at open lung resection. They looked at abdominal surgeries, colorectal, minimally invasive versus open, gynecological. I want to point out these two, two uh, figures here. So prolonged post-discharge, this is the use of opioids after uh, greater than 90 days. And the confidence intervals, they cross 4.6 to 8.3, 7.4 to 9.6 when we look at minimally invasive versus open lung. They al almost completely overlap when we look at the minimally invasive laparoscopic colorectal surgeries versus the open colorectal surgeries. I find that amazing. So just because you're necessarily going, doing something minimally invasive, the incision isn't everything. There's a lot more going on than what we know. Well, then, what's going on with patients who are being discharged after their hospital stay with their opioid use? This was a publication that was published uh, uh, out of uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Evan Karish, out of Washington University. This was an editorial uh, in one of the most recent anesthesiology um, um, publications. And basically, he's talking about the soaring volume of opioid prescribing, prescribing patterns, 
and the devastating surge in opioid diversion abuse addiction. What's going on with these patients after they're discharged from the hospital? Well, we, as if you don't know, the um, National Survey on Drug Use and Health um, come out, come, they come out with every year with the uh, statistics on uh, different uses of medications that are done from an illicit perspective. This, the most recent literature is from 2013. And if you look at pain relievers, it's only second to marijuana in terms of illicit drug use. It's actually, when you look at the numbers, it's more than cocaine, heroin, and stimulants combined. We have a real problem, and we shouldn't really be digging our heads in the sand thinking that it doesn't exist. But when you look at where these opioids are coming from, it turns out that about 53% of patients who illicitly use opioids receive them free from a friend or a relative. And then the second highest number is from one doctor, and the third highest number is that they actually bought or took, meaning they stole, from a friend or relative. They aren't going to the streets and getting these. And if you combine these, and if you look, okay, these folks who actually have these opioids in their home, the ones that they got free from a friend or relative, where did they get their opioids from? And so it turns out it all came from one doctor. 84% of patients who have opioids in their home are legitimate. They come from one physician. They're not doctor shopping, which people try to claim this to be. They're not going about and taking it from the streets. These are people who have legitimate opioid prescriptions in their home. Well, primary care physicians were recently asked in a survey about knowledge and attitudes about opioid abuse. Where do they think patients who illicitly use drugs get their opioids from? And a whopping 69% of physicians think it comes from more than one doctor. So there's a disconnect here. Physicians don't feel like they're contributing to the problem. They think that people are doctor shopping, when in reality, most people are actually getting them from legitimate physicians. Well, that was a survey based, or at least geared towards primary care physicians. What about surgeons? Do surgeons feel like it's a problem with their prescribing habits? So they compared, this was an interesting um, publication out of hand, they compared primary care physicians to hand surgeons. In yellow are primary care physicians, and in deep blue are the, the hand surgeons. And they looked at a wide variety of attributes in terms of opioid prescriptions. They looked at addiction. They, they, these are their concerns about addiction, death related to opioids, motor vehicle, motor vehicle accidents, tolerance, cognition problems, and sedation. In almost every one of these categories except for non-adherence, almost every single surgeon was less concerned about any of those things than primary care physicians. So surgeons, so first of all, we, we just established that primary care physicians don't quite know what's going on in terms of where these opioids are coming from, and then surgeons are even less concerned. Now, I'm being general here, so you know, take that for, with a grain of salt, but I was just, I'm trying to bring a point across. So how much opioid do patients really need after they're discharged from a hospital? It's an interesting question, because there's not a lot of people who look at what happens with these patients after they're discharged from the hospital. It's sort of like out of sight, out of mind, when in reality, you know, as, as an anesthesiologist in training, I used to think that <clears throat> landing the plane 
of surgery was when I took the tube out of that patient's mouth. And I was like, yes, I did a great job. And then I realized the more I did perioperative pain medicine, I, um, I, I started to think, well, you know what? Actually, landing this plane is when the patient walks out the hospital door. And then I realized as I do more and more perioperative, and half of my time I do chronic um, you know, pain things in the clinic, I realized that's not true either. Landing the plane in terms of perioperative medicine is when they get back to meaningful life, either going back to work or going back to a sense of normalcy after their surgery. That's landing the plane. Nobody's really looking at that. And so it turns out that in, in, you know, hand surgeons are actually quite interested in the prescribing patterns. And it turns out in this publication that was recent, 2012, they looked at 245 out of, two, 245 out of 250 uh, patients responded who had upper extremity surgery. And they wanted to know, on average, how many of the medications that they prescribed to them post-operatively were actually used. And they turned out, turned out that only about two or three days' worth of opioids was actually used. The majority, 52% of patients, only used two to three days' worth of opioids. And you can see that the trend goes down even, even more, where almost nil were at two weeks. How many of us deal with patients who get prescribed 30 days worth or 60 days worth of oxycodone in like two huge bottle pills and are sent out the door you know, with follow-up with their physician or surgeon in four to six weeks. And they have no idea what's going on afterwards. It's this black box. And it's almost like here, I'm, and <clears throat> they may mean well, especially in the, area, in the era of patient satisfaction. They don't want to necessarily have patients suffer. But in doing so, it's almost like here's this big bag of of opioids, don't give me a call. The same question was posed from a urological perspective, and they looked at either minor surgeries, either minor open urological surgeries or endoscopic surgeries. They looked at major laparoscopic and major open um, surgeries, cystectomies, um, nephrectomies. And again, on average, <clears throat> only 52% of the opioids prescribed to their patients post-discharge was used. Well, if you think that this is an adult-related problem, and if you deal mostly with pediatrics, you think you're off the hook, you're wrong. So in this publication, just from two years ago, they looked at 1,540 adolescent children who underwent um, surgery. These are, these are kids who are in um, competitive sports. There's a lot of pressure on them to perform. And it turns out that, and they looked at two sets of data, 2009 to 2010, and then 2011 to 2012. And they found that those who are in organized sports versus those who weren't were twice as likely to be prescribed an opioid. They were at 10 times greater risk of misuse for taking too much. And then they were at a four times greater risk to get high. So this isn't just an adult issue. This is a pediatric issue as well. And we prescribe these large amounts of opioids at discharge, and we don't necessarily properly educate patients on what to do in terms of opioid overdose signs and symptoms. We don't spend that time with patients to talk about what are the things that they should be looking out for if something were to happen. Okay, well then what happens with uh, this idea that opioids is a are a transition to heroin? It turned, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but... There's a paper that was published that I thought was quite interesting in 2009. 
This is what we call an ultra-rapid assessment of patients. This was done, I don't know if you know who Ted Cicero is. He's on faculty at Washington University School of Medicine, where I work. And, um, and him and a, and a variety of other addiction specialists got a bunch of people together in a room to pose a series of questions regarding um, prescription opioid use and diversion and sort of how, how does it um, you know, evolve over in a community. And they had a wide variety of people. They had people from key informants to people who, buy, who bought um, uh, drugs off the street and people who sold them on the street. And one male <clears throat> heroin user in his early 20s stated, I started with Percocets and ended up shooting 10 bags of heroin a day. That's a little, that's a little forward. Another 23-year-old male reported, it led me to heroin. When I was in junior high, my grandfather had cancer, and he had Percocet and morphine pills. And after he died, my grandma still had a lot of his pill bottles around. And so I started taking them, and after that, I was hooked. The theme was indicated by a wide variety of others. They, and he's, uh, he's referring to prescription um, opioids, they're just as strong as dope and weed. They really get you there. They get you into that scene. Now, it turns out that um, Xanax, Oxycodone, Percocets, you know, they're actually quite expensive on the street. Heroin's dirt cheap. So once you get into that stage of taking opioid prescription medications for illicit use, and you can't afford it, heroin becomes a very, very um, darling um, source for you. So sometimes the prescription drugs are real expensive. Most pills, like an Oxy, can be 40 bucks. It was just getting too expensive for me. So they turned towards heroin. And I'm starting to see this, unfortunately, more and more when I um, attend on service um, in the acute pain service. You know, we used to have maybe one heroin abuser come in, you know, a month. Now I'm seeing two to three a week. And the problem that's happening is we're not treating these patients the way we really should. And all we're doing is, you know, it's almost like we're turning a blind eye because these patients shouldn't really be discharged out of the hospital with a boatload of opioids. So then they get tapered off of their opioids before they get discharged. So what do you think they're going to do once they get discharged and they're in pain? They're going to shoot heroin and they come back into the hospital. Here's a really interesting scenario. What about these patients who come in, they're heroin abusers, now they have tricuspid valve lesions that are growing because they shoot, them, shoot themselves up. So the surgeons are obligated to do a tricuspid valve replacement. They do the tricuspid valve replacement. They have to stay in the hospital for six weeks for IV antibiotics. So during that period of time, they're weaned off of their opioids slowly. They get discharged. They go back on the street, and what do they do? They shoot heroin. They come back with a tricuspid valve <laughs> growth on their replaced valve. And what are the surgeons, what are the surgeons going to do? It's a conundrum. In fact, I saw a patient, because we're a large tertiary care center, come in being preoperatively evaluated for their fourth tricuspid valve replacement. That's incredible, right? So what are we doing with these patients? Programs after discharge so that they can get to where they need to for support. We're turning a total blind eye to this. There's this blog that I found in preparing for this talk, and I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but it's it was, it was a recovering heroin addict, five unexpected things I learned from being a heroin addict. And he said a very interesting uh, thing. He said, it's not that I suddenly you know, um, fell on a, you know, a, a needle on, in the playground that had heroin, and I was suddenly addicted, and the addiction gremlins came into my head. I, and I'm sort of paraphrasing, but this was sort of his quote. Um, he goes, it's actually that once I realized 
that I got the chills when I stopped taking heroin, that I realized that it wasn't necessarily the high, but it was what I was escaping from in the first place. That when I was on this, I couldn't care less about my problems. But it was only when I started coming off of this stuff that I realized I had to face the problems in my life, the psychosocial issues. And that's what he realized he was running away from. And these are things that we're not addressing with these patients. So joint commission, yes? That's what I'll get to. Excellent question. The question is, in terms of repeating, have we done anything? Now that we've identified the problem, which is half of what I wanted to do with this talk, have we identified solutions? And that's what I'm going to present to you in just a minute. So you did a great segue. Thank you. <laughs> so, but before I, I get to that, I just wanted to point out that Joint Commission, in January of 2015, actually revised their statement. I'm going to blow up this little box that's down here in the bottom. I say, note, treatment strategies for pain may include pharmacological and non-pharmacological approaches. They didn't use the non-pharmacological before. Um, strategies should reflect a patient-centered approach, considered the patient's current presentation, health care provider's clinical judgment, and the risks and benefits associated with the strategies, including potential risk, dependency, addiction, and abuse. That statement was not there before January of 2015. Before that, Joint Commission's whole purpose was every patient has a right to opioids, or at least to pain control. So this was a shift in, in um, Joint Commission standing, knowing that there's now this issue going on. The other thing I wanted to point out is, and this was talked about in a lot of the panels, like the Medical Stasi panel, um, Paul Christo just touched on it briefly, but I don't know how many of you are familiar with DAWN data. Do you know what DAWN is? DAWN is um, uh, basically a, a series of data on emergency room visits by patients when they show up um, into the emergency room after having used drugs for either illicitly, for recreational use, or for potential suicide attempt, basically not according to their prescription um, habits. And, you know, the easiest thing to point out is that with increasing prescription of opioids, so this is amount of kilograms of, of a potential opioid prescribed, the number of emergency room visits go up. Okay, so we're determining some sort of relationship between if you prescribe more opioids, there's more patients coming up to the ER. But what I want to show you in this, and the reason why I'm, I actually put this slide together, was that I want you to look at the slope, the slope of the curve, okay? So look at the different medications. The stronger drugs, fentanyl, hydromorphone, look at how steep that angle is. It's really incredible. Compared to 
oxycodone and hydrocodone, which are about that 45 degree angle, so a one to one ratio. Morphine is a little less. Methadone is pretty high in terms of people. Meperidine is going down. Less and less people are using Demerol, or prescribing Demerol, I should say. While these smaller ones are pretty, pretty low. So it's, it's just an interesting thing to point out is it's not just any kind of opioid, but it's also the kind of opioid that you're prescribing that also makes a difference. So the last two slides that I want to point out in regards to the problem is, is it a, uh, a subspecialty issue? So is it the, you know, are primary care physicians prescribing this or is it the surgeons? What's going on? And in this study that was published in 2014 out of pain medicine, they looked at opioid prescribing incidents and fatalities by prescribers in Utah over, over 2002 to 2010. And it turns out that you know, in this cohort, family medicine physicians were um, the largest number of uh, prescription um, uh, prescribing uh, physicians. Emergency room and internal medicine physicians were also high. But if you compare that to another study that looked at Medicaid patients in North Carolina, here, orthopedic surgeons were the highest prescribing. So it's not necessarily a surgeon versus primary care physician issue. It's not that one is worse than the other. It really is a regional issue with a wide variety and a huge gamut of, of uh, different um, subspecialties that are unfortunately um, coming up with, the, with the, or producing the problem. So in regards to your question, sir, what are people uh, doing to try to curb this? So in this recent publication, 2015, Again, these are hand surgeons. They looked at the number of opioids. This is the average number of pills prescribed by surgeons postoperatively. And what they did is they developed an education tool for the surgeons. It was a protocol that they were to follow. You know, if they had this kind of surgery versus this versus that, these are the average number of tablets that they found that their patients used. This is what we're gonna prescribe our patients. We're gonna have a closer follow-up. We're not gonna necessarily wait 30 days, we're gonna have them come back in seven to 14 days and whatnot. So this is part of their protocol. And what they did is they implemented the protocol and they looked at the number of pills that were prescribed pre-protocol versus post-protocol. And in almost every one of these, and it was statistically significant with ganglion cysts and ORIF fractures, open reduction internal fixations, that the number of pills dramatically decreased in these patients in terms of their prescribing habits. So it, it's education when it comes to um, the prescription habits of these surgeons. It's pointing out the problem first, and then closer follow-up and lower number of tablet prescriptions um, as part of their education perspective. What other opportunities are there? And that's the other thing I want to point out, is when we talk about enhanced recovery after surgery, for those of us who abide by this for post-operative patients, we know that um, opioids are not the only thing that we use. And so epidural analgesia is one thing that we commonly refer to, but it's a wide variety of things. It's counseling. Pre-admission counseling is a huge component. And we talk about it with patients now in our preoperative assessment center at Washington University. Also, all these other non-opioid analgesics to lower the burden that we have to place on opioids postoperatively. So reducing that need. What are the patients that are at risk that we try to identify for opioid abuse postoperatively? Well, in this 2012 paper, there were key characteristics, things that increased the odds ratio greater than two, that if they were on buprenorphine or methadone, clearly that's a risk factor, that's a red flag. 
at least one diagnosis of non-opioid drug abuse, like alcohol, for example, um, prior opioid prescriptions, having a family member diagnosed with opioid abuse, mental illness, or even hepatitis. These are things that we try to identify beforehand and have conversations with the patients about how we're going to be best taking care of them postoperatively. And that's the whole point of acute pain services now at, in hospitals. It's not just patient care, but it's education and it's research opportunities. So the whole idea is that we know intraoperatively, you know, things like regional anesthesia can lower the amount of things that we need to, fentanyl, for example, as we use in the operating room. Um, and it improves perioperative pain management, but also produces a wide variety of other things, including um, you can maintain a patient's consciousness during surgery if you need to, especially if they're very sick and they can't undergo general anesthesia. But, you know, going from acute to chronic postoperative pain, it may be very different. And even identifying these patients, like I said earlier. So what do I mean by that? Well, for example, Cochrane database looked at the use of epidurals and return of gut function after surgery. And they found that epidurals don't just take care of pain. They don't just reduce the amount of opioids that you need, but they have an intrinsic property of bringing back first passage of stool at an earlier rate, of flatus, return of flatus. Everything favors the interventional arm, the epidural. If you look at the um, conglomerate, or I should say the amalgamate of, of these things, they all favors the treatment. It helps with nausea. It reduces the incidence of vomiting. And there was even a study that looked at those on cue balls that sometimes surgeons put in the incision versus actual epidural use. And they looked at pain scores. They looked at return of gut function, sleep quality. Everything favored the epidural. There was no difference in urinary retention rate. I know surgeons are concerned about that with epidurals. But there was no difference in urinary rate if the epidural was placed at T10 or higher. Median length of stay was lower in the epidural group. We, and at WashU, we place these epidurals for a wide variety of surgeries and cases, and this is sort of where we place it based on where the incision is going to be. These are things to think about in use instead of just opioids. And that's the whole idea of placing the epidural based on where the incision is going to be. So, it, you know, if you place the epidural centered around where the incision is going to be based on the dermatomal level, then return of gut function and pain control all favor the epidural. But if you look at earlier data, so if you look at things that were published in the 1990s, early 1990s, they didn't place epidurals where the incision was going to be. <clears throat> and so everything pointed out, oh, pff, epidurals don't do anything. So that's why I'm, I'm pointing this out, because you have to be careful when you read the literature, especially in meta-analyses, when they start looking at all of this, these are different pieces of literature. This is a set of um, literature where the epidural was in congruence with the incision, and you have completely different results. So that's why you have to be very careful how you interpret the literature. And then when you look at where patients go from the acute side of things to chronic post-surgical pain, we know that patients who, for example, undergo a thoracotomy, if they get an epidural, there is a much greater re reduction in the risk of post-thoracotomy pain syndromes. In women who undergo mastectomies, if they had a paravertebral block, 
that there's a much greater risk of developing post-mastectomy pain syndromes. These are things that we have to consider in these patients. It's, again, not just the opioids. And now, at WashU, we send patients home with um, regional blockade. So people who have shoulder replacements, they'll go home with a catheter in the interscaling brachial plexus. And they just we give them the instructions on how to remove it. It's very easy. It's only a centimeter underneath the skin. Just remove it five days. They go home with a much greater reduction of opioids after surgery. And what I want to get at is these non-opioid-based techniques for taking care of pain have far greater implications than just pain control and gut function like I was talking about, but it actually has a greater, um, broader uh, implication in terms of, in terms of um, morbidity and mortality. So this was a recent set of data that we just um, looked at it at our institution, it hasn't been published yet, at epidurals and trauma. And these are patients who um, either had a fall or a motor vehicle accident, they had rib fractures. And so they were admitted and um, we were contacted for um, pain control. It turns out that we were looking at patients who underwent thoracic epidurals for their rib control pain versus the controls. This was controlled based on age, gender, the number of ribs that were um, broken, and um, it was a two-to-one control. And we found that the mortality was significantly reduced in patients who had thoracic epidurals. The DVT rate was significantly reduced in patients who had epidurals. And when we looked at it, the number of ventilator days in the ICU were significantly reduced. And what's really interesting is we looked at their injury severity score, their ISS score. And in patients who had huge, whopping, devastating injuries when they came into our hospital with a severity score of greater than 25, if they had an epidural, their mortality went from 21%, this is in-house mortality, 21%, down to less than 4%. So these patients, these people who are, who are getting things that traditionally surgeons thought were just for pain control, are totally affecting outcome. So now surgeons are clamoring and requesting for these patients when they get into the hospital to get epidurals. The last thing that I want to point out and this is about prolonged opioid use, is something that just got published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. And they looked at, this is an animal study, and I understand people are going to say, okay, we're not animals, we're not mice. But this is the first paper just published that actually pointed out the potential reason for something that we've been seeing for a number of years. This, so they used a rodent model and they created a sciatic li ligation injury. So they ligated the sciatic nerve of these, these um, rodents. And then, so starting 10 days after this constriction injury, they gave half the mice morphine at the traditional dose of five mg per kg. That's what we normally give mice. Or saline. And they gave it twice daily for five days. And then they used the flick tail test and the, the hind paw test, ways of measuring you know, pain in these rodents. And they found that those mice that had a brief course of morphine had a much prolonged duration of pain and allodynia compared to the rodents that never got morphine. So that something was sensitizing these rats or these mice when they were getting morphine to having increased pain. So what they did is they didn't just stop there, which is what most of the published literature will tell you. 
is they actually went into deeper detail. And they found that there, this was being mediated by a dorsal spinal microglial reactivity that if you bind to the opioid receptor, you're actually, there's a flip side going on with microglia, that you're activating these microglial cells and that you're creating this inflammasome that's occurring that is increasing levels of interleukins. Interleukins are inflammatory mediators. IL-1 beta has been implicated in chronic pain syndromes, chronic post-surgical pain syndromes. So IL-1 beta, IL-6, and TNF-alpha have all been implicated in these syndromes, and that decreasing levels of IL-10 is also implicated because it's an anti-inflammatory interleukin. And it turns out that the more you give morphine or an, some opioid-like receptor, the more you're actually, you may be reducing pain on one side, but creating an inflammasome on the other that we're not realizing. And so, again, I, just, I use this at the very end to highlight why we're trying to use non-opioid-based approaches. Now, the last thing that I want to point out is I'm not the person here to tell you that opioids are not indicated for post-operative pain. Completely not true. We know that opioids, if there's one thing that we use opioids for without as much hesitation, it's post-operative pain. But it's the judicious use of opioids is what I'm trying to get at and how we can minimize that and what we do after these patients are discharged from the hospital that matters. So I hope that, you know, at the end of this talk, I was able to show you that a lot of patients continue on opioids postoperatively, and we don't necessarily realize that. That the current way that we prescribe opioids is that we're flooding the community with unused opioids, and that unused opioids are the main source of abused or diverted drugs, and that abused opioids can be a gateway to heroin and cocaine use, and that we have to extend our reach beyond just opioids if we want to be taking care of our patients. So hopefully that was helpful. Thanks. I'm just on time, so I'm happy to take questions. Um, I'll start with, with you, sir. I agree. The, and what's interesting is, and, and I hope that I shed the light on this, but, you know, I made this, you know, hopefully clear in terms of what the literature shows, but there's a lot of surgeons who don't know that this is a problem. And as clearly evidenced by the study that looked at surgeons' attitudes towards, you know, the problems with opioids, they, they don't think that they're 
part of this problem. And that's why, you know, while in this big pain week conference, you know, we talk a lot about the prescribing habits of opioids, I, I wanted this lecture to be a slightly skewed and different in looking at it from a post-operative perspective, that there is a problem in that regard. You're right, but this is something that is, so, you know, there's a lot that's published on opioid prescriptions for chronic non-cancer pain and the problems associated with it, but this is just starting to come out. This is the cutting edge, like in the last year or so, more and more people are starting to write about post-operative you know, pain as a conduit towards some of the problems that we're seeing in our country. So I think that you're right, it needs to happen. Different surgical um, and um, you know, governing bodies need to talk with each other, but they don't even realize yet. This is, this is gonna happen, but it'll be in the next couple of years, I hope. Yes? Okay. Well, the, so in terms of the long-acting bupivacaine, um, you know, we, we have started looking uh, into it for a wide variety of things. The one thing about long-acting bupivacaine is that it's a single shot, and it's supposed to be lasting, I think the duration of action is anywhere from 48 to 72 hours because it's liposomal. The problem is that it's not titratable, right? So if something needs to happen, meaning they need to assess the patient, I'm talking about it in terms of for example, regional blockade, if you're talking about an interscalene brachial plexus block. I'm, again, I'm going to be a little technical here, but um, you know, if, a, if a surgeon wants to assess hand function, motor function after surgery, and they have such a dense block that they can't do that, we can always turn down the catheter, the, the rate on the catheter, and within a couple of hours, motor will, will come back and they can assess. Sensory may take some time, and then we can turn it back up. But if you have a single shot, long-acting bupivacaine, then you can't do that. And if there were any concerns about you know, potential adverse outcomes from the surgery, a surgeon might not be able to assess that. So when I talk about long-acting bupivacaine, I look at it from different uh, operative perspectives because for a transversus abdominis plane block, it would be great. Who cares, right? We're not gonna assess motor function you know, in your abdomen after um, having an incision. So that might be very useful. So I think there's, there's a place and a time for long-acting bupivacaine, but I don't want to necessarily say that it's, it's generalizable across every kind of, of intervention. And then, what, I'm sorry, what was the question on the meloxicam? And I'm not as familiar with that. I will say, though, that um, you, you'll have enough of a hard time selling non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs to surgeons post-operatively with the meloxicam component. So that's just one thing to keep in mind. But yeah, Yes, sir? So that's a very good question. At our institution, we do things slightly different than what you'd probably find in the literature, and there's reasons why. But at WashU, what we do is we actually have just a local anesthetic solution. And there's a reason why. 
There's a greater incidence of pruritus if you add opioid in, in a neuraxial form. There's a greater incidence of urinary retention if you do that as well. And so what we do is we usually place T10 or higher epidurals for a wide variety of things. And we just use bupivacaine 0.1%. And what's interesting <laughs> is we actually give them a PCA. We give them a dilated PCA. And there's two reasons for that. A, if the epidural isn't working for whatever reason, or if the patient has hypotension and we need to turn down the epidural, they still have a form of getting um, some PCA. On average, there's a greater reduction in the need for the use of the PCA. When we come and see these patients, they usually use it maybe 10 times over 12 hours. It helps with nursing, it helps with the patients, and there's a wide variety in terms of patients who may need more or less, so it, it covers that, and the safety is there from a PCA perspective. But what it also helps with is that once it's time for that epidural to be removed, we're able to calculate the amount that's used through the PCA and provide an oral equivalent dose. Then we get rid of the PCA and keep the epidural for a day as a transition period so that they're having the epidural, but they're taking an oral opioid. We want to make sure that they're able to tolerate an oral regimen because you don't want to take out the epidural before they start taking stuff by mouth, and then when they start taking stuff by mouth, they're nauseated and they're vomiting, and now they might have an ileus, and you've already taken the epidural, and they're worse off now than when you first started. So we're not burning the bridge. So we keep the epidural in for, a, for that transition period where we know that they're going to be able to tolerate their stuff by mouth. Then when we come in the next day, they're doing okay, epidural comes out. And the surgeons love that because now they're on an oral regimen that they're going to be going home with. And so that's why they've adopted these techniques because in other institutions, they, they'll mix the opioid in the neuroaxial you know, solution. And then you know, once the epidural comes out, they walk away. And then sometimes the surgeons are there flailing, okay, well, what do I do now? You know, and so we, we leave them with an exit plan. So I'm very intrigued with this uh, notion of IV naloxone use um, because there's now some literature that's coming out looking at using a low dose of IV naloxone in combination with PCA use to see um, a wide variety of things. They look at what the literature right now looks at adverse events. They look at you know, um, respiratory depression and pruritus as things that they look at. And they find that there's a much lower incidence if you give a slow, low dose of naloxone. I find that interesting. Here's the other thing, though, that I think is be, would be more interesting. I just spent that last slide talking about microglial activity. We know, based on the works of Sean Mackey and his group at Stanford, that low-dose naltrexone works through an antimicroglial you know, activity. What's to say that what we're doing with naloxone may actually be causing microglial inhibition? Remember, we said there was a yin-yang here, right? That if you give opioids, you may actually be producing an inflammasome. This is stuff that I think is really interesting and cutting edge, that there's a yin-yang here, and whether or not you know, giving a low dose of naloxone may, in fact, be reducing that risk of you know, high IL-1 beta and you know, IL-6 uh, inflammation. That's an interesting concept that I don't think anyone's looked at. In terms of what? 
Uh huh. Right. Good question. It's a great question. It turns out that there's a huge amount of literature in the abdominal colorectal surgery that shows that lidocaine infusions and that epidurals reduce IL-1 beta, IL-6, and TNF-alpha. <laughs> so to answer your question is it's, it's doing a lot more than just taking care of pain. Um, and so what essentially we're doing is we're reducing this and we're also reducing the need for the opioid as well. So they're not needing as much. But it's a great question. Yes? I don't say we never, but we, we usually don't. Exactly, exactly. Yes. So, so you're absolutely right in the sense that C-sections are a very different animal than what I'm talking about. And at our institution, we use sufentanil in, mixed in with our um, uh, bupivacaine solution, and, and specifically for that reason, because C-sections are very different. And, um, and if you look at the rate of incidence of chronic post-surgical pain syndrome, C-sections is on the lowest part of that spectrum. Right. But the difference is that, you know, C-section patients don't spend a long time in the hospital, four to eight hours. Whereas these patients that I'm talking about, these are patients who are, you know, colorectal cases that may stay four or five days. So there's a, lot, a much more um, diverse uh, recovery period than the typical straightforward C-section patient. What's interesting is that for C-sections that are complicated, that, um, you know, may have um, percreta involved, I don't know if, uh, I'm being a little technical, but if there's a risk for massive bleeding, because of the way the placenta is, um, you know, ingrained against the, uh, the uterus, <clears throat> or if the patient's had a wide variety of um, surgical, abdominal surgical procedures where there may be a lot of scarring involved and then complications involved with that. The obstetric anesthesiologists have asked the acute pain service to actually place a T10 epidural. Instead of doing the usual combined spinal epidural where you put the spinal, you, you know, you put the epidural in and then the spinal and then you, you thread the catheter and it's all in the same place, so it's a lumbar epidural. They know that these patients are going to spend a longer period of time in the hospital and that there's a greater risk. So they actually ask us to place a thoracic epidural, a T10 epidural, leave it there, and they do a regular spinal. And then that epidural is there to help them with their recovery afterwards. So that's just a side note. I'm happy to answer questions up here because I think you guys are going to be late for a breakfast or something. So um, I appreciate you guys staying around. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed the talk.